Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. The Michael Reed Show Podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie Wednesday morning, the 26th of January. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reed on LMFM. Yesterday, Fine Gael TD for Loud and Eastmead, Ferguson O'Dowd asked the Taoiseach in the Dáil if Micheál Martin agreed that now is the appropriate time to establish a government commission of inquiry into all of the circumstances surrounding the deaths of 23 residents from COVID in the Dalgan House nursing home in April of 2020. The Taoiseach was clear he does not believe this is the right way to go about looking into what happened in Dalgan House and Micheál Martin ruled out a commission of inquiry. I'm not convinced about commission of inquiries being the optimal way to, to, to unfortunately, uh, investigate these issues. They go on much longer than people would have anticipated or expected. We, I do, there's a genuine issue there, don't get me wrong. And I think the uh, department are examining a variety of options as how best to respect uh, and meet the needs and... and um, um, concerns of the families of, of those in these grants. But there may be, but there, sorry, there may be more than, I, I know deputy, but I just have to, but people aren't going to be satisfied with, with an inquiry that goes on six years either. I'm just trying to be honest with the House. I mean, but some can and some do is what I'm saying. And I think there might be other ways of doing it is what I'm saying. There might be a better way of doing it. All right, thank you, deputy. No, we've heard, we've heard your point. Uh, Kian Corla, Sean Farrell, cutting uh, Ferguson O'Dowd off there, having heard the deputy's point. I'm not sure how clearly people uh, at home heard what Ferguson O'Dowd had to say, but uh, Ferguson O'Dowd is on the line with us. Good morning to you and thank you indeed for joining oh, us. Uh, off time, uh, sorry? My mic in the doll was cut off. Oh, I understand, yes. No, no, well, I, I mean, I, I did hear what you had to say and I have the transcript of it here. And uh, f- oh. just for the sake of our listeners, I was just going to say uh, that I, I think you argued with almost every point that the Taoiseach made yesterday, but it also seems that your arguments fell on deaf ears. Uh, the Taoiseach uh, is very clear. He doesn't see uh, the merit in holding a commission of investigation, a commission of inquiry into what happened in Dalgan House. That's bound to come as a blow to the families. Of course it is. And I spoke to a number of family members yesterday and they're very upset by this because what they want and what they're entitled to and what they will have to get, in my view, is is the, all of the facts that concern them. And also they're entitled to closure. It's April 2020 since their family members passed away and it's time now for the government to do their job, which is to ensure that all the facts in relation to the what happened in that nursing home in a very short period of time. It's only from around the beginning of April to, you know, early May 
that we're talking about. So when the Taoiseach says it could go on for seven years, that's God's wallop in my view. It won't go on for seven years uh, because we're focused on what went on there. Now, there's lots of evidence already, uh, you know, that you're aware of and I'm aware of and the families are aware of, but there's still lack of clarity as to what exactly brought the HSE in there. Why did they decide? The only nursing home in Ireland uh, to actually go in and take it over, take over the management of it. Mm. And I believe at, at the heart of that, there's, there's some some appalling evidence that we mm. don't, we're not yet aware of. And it's that unique situation, uh, which is uh, why you argue this nursing home merits uh, an investigation. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, was there not an understanding that at some time there would be a state inquiry into this? There is, yes, there is indeed. Uh, I've raised this at my parliamentary party, and the Thomas has said that he was in favour of an inquiry. Uh, you see, the, the issue is you can have a general inquiry, you, you can, you know, you can have all sorts of things happening nationally. I think we need that. We need a broad look at, at what worked and what didn't work. But what we need also is a specific inquiry into Dalgan because this is an exceptional issue and it's enti- I'll put you a different way Michael if, if these were 23 children who died in, the, in an institution of care mm. there would be no question about discretion of inquiry because it's older people uh, I regret that uh, and I'm not saying this is a T-shirt at all but there's, there's a, there's a, there could well be ageism as work, at work here uh, you know, there's not the same degree of concern, unfortunately, in our society uh, about older people. And I think there's an article, I know you may not have read it, uh, by Cathy Sheridan in the Irish Times today about ageism and older people being ill. And I, I just, I'm going to pursue this and I'm not letting it go, I can right. assure you. I, I haven't uh, seen Cathy uh, Sheridan's article today yet, no. Uh, but I, I will read it later on. Sure. Um, yeah, that's no, a, a, article, yeah. it's a, there's a serious insinuation in what you're saying and uh, I suppose we all have to be cognizant of how the families are, are listening to us uh, this morning and how they might feel. Um, the Taoiseach, I, I think it's true to say, clearly ruled out any prospect of a commission of inquiry yesterday. But he, he did say that there were other ways of looking into it. Um, yes, yeah. uh, he, he said this would take six, seven years, uh, as you said. You say that's Cod's wallop. It's a pretty remarkable uh, response uh, from you, Fergus O'Dowd, to what the Taoiseach said to you. Um, do, you, do you. Do you believe that well, there I are... Could there, different word. Uh, I could use a different word. It begins with B. Okay. Do you believe there are other appropriate ways of looking well, into that, that's, uh, that's an important question and obviously uh, we're just back in the doll now uh, this week so I would talk to the ministers concerned and see what they're talking about but I think unless we get the truth uh, you know when we got the truth in Lee's Cross and I believe it will take a commission of inquiry to get the truth in, in this particular case and it is an exception and there's no like uh, to seven years, I don't know where that came out of because it wouldn't take seven years to, to you know, to ask the the key players, whoever they were in the HSE, uh, to come in and to say exactly why why did you go in there? Because what the families are telling me that when they have directly asked the head of the HSE and they can speak for themselves, they're met with one word. Which says, which is silence. That's one sound. Nothing. They're not told. That's what they're saying to me. And uh, you know, there's a wall in their view, uh, and I'm not putting words in their mouth. There's silence about this, which is not acceptable. Uh, not acceptable at all. And um, 
I, you know, I, I will continue to work with them as indeed with other people, mm. uh, to, you know, to get at the truth and using your uh, radio to articulate these arguments. I think it's very helpful as well to put the questions. Uh, but it's my job to pursue this, and I will pursue it, and I, okay. I, I will succeed. Why, why do you think there is a, a wall of silence? I mean, well, I don't know because because you see, the, the, I believe that something dreadful happened there, and I don't know what it is. Neither do the families, mm. because of all of the deaths in all of the nursing homes, and the figure I could get yesterday, now it isn't accurate. I think it's to November of last year. There was two thousand five hundred people died in nursing homes, right? Uh, but this is the only nursing home that the HSE took over. So that, that had to be very serious. Um, had to be an exceptionally serious issue. And uh, that's that's why I think this is so important. And that's why I think a commission of inquiry... Mm. But like, if, if the Taoiseach and the Department of Affairs come up with a judge letter, like, I'm happy to listen to what they have to say. Um, and if they, can, if they can get at the truth in another way, well, obviously, it would be churlish not to listen to that option. Uh, but at this moment in time, you know, that's, yeah. that's my view. Well, all the families want is the truth, answers, uh, transparency and so on. Um, is there a reluctance to get to the truth, do you think? Well, it seems to me, uh, it seems to me that there is. Uh, now, in, in fairness to the Taoiseach, uh, I did advise his office that I was raising it yesterday, so he had prior knowledge of my question, which is the appropriate way to do it. I wasn't trying to, to have a go out of the blue, you know. Um, and, like, I will talk to the Minister for Health and, and the Minister for Older People as well about this. Uh, and I'll also raise it with him. And the Minister for Health has spoken about Elgin House many times over because he's been asked uh, about it continuously. Uh, yes, yeah. By yourself and the other TDs uh, in the county, indeed. and indeed, and indeed by the families. Yes, and the point is that uh, you know there's other evidence coming to light about other nursing homes now, and I mean, you know, I do know and accept that at that time that this was the first time that we were dealing with a, with a crisis like this. Uh, but having said that, you know, what was exceptional about what happened here? That's what we're. That's what I want to find out. Mm. Uh, you know, and that 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 goes. To does that it go back to? Does it go back to the Easter weekend uh, when it seemed uh, to really go over uh, a tipping point, whereby uh, the nursing home uh, made it very clear that it couldn't cope. Uh, the management of the yes, nursing yes. home made contact with the Minister for Health, that was Simon Harris at the time, uh, yes, and, uh, and yes, made sir, contact yes. with the Chief Medical Officer. Uh, unprecedented things for a nursing home to do, but such was the state of panic uh, and such was the sense of helplessness in a nursing home that they couldn't care for the people who they were charged with caring for, that they were screaming for help, uh, to put yes, that uh, in uh, that uh, way, if I can, but that I think probably is an accurate enough way to put it. It is, and in fact, on the seventh, uh, the seventh of April, uh, the note that I have, and I know Mikey, you've seen this, is that a staff person said that they had no GP support physically in the building, and GPs would not come into the building due to COVID. Now that was the seventh of April. Now and then on the thirteenth of April, they still didn't have that physical presence until later. The thirteenth of April, uh, a named doctor uh, came in to check 
dehydration. So there's a huge gap there. There's a huge, like, you know, we just want to know what, what was going on. Why why weren't, why did that happen? Why weren't, if a GP is supposed to come in and he's sick or whatever, that's fine. Well, how, how could you expect a nursing home to operate in a huge, with no physical GP support present in the building? Mm. So how could they diagnose? How could they, how those poor people is the truth too terrible? Well, that is a terrible truth, you know. Yeah, but it, it is the truth. Is the full account of what happened in Dalgan House too terrible? Well, well we're going to find out. I, I, I don't know, but I, but I, I think the families are entitled to the truth and the whole truth and nothing but mm. the truth. And they must be at and the end of their tether. You spoke to some of the families uh, and... Uh, we're hoping to speak to some of them in the coming days, but I imagine this is a, a difficult week for them because we're getting on close on two years uh, yeah. since the peak of the problems in Dalgan House. And, and the reason I'm raising it now is because uh, because they did, you know, thankfully at the moment uh, we all believe that the, that the, the major crisis is now over. Yeah. And it's time, obviously, to, to look forward to what we need to do in the health services, but also to look back at what went wrong. Mm. And this has to be the worst home in Ireland in terms of the outcomes. That's a, that's a very good argument you're making. Um, but there was a, another argument, I think you made it, and other ma- others made it in the past uh, as well, was that uh, maybe this should have happened a year ago, whilst uh, COVID was still such a threat, and in case COVID got into the nursing homes again, that all of the nursing homes in the country would be better prepared, and that you wouldn't have a repeat of this. You see, one of the points that was made against that, that of that case, which I which I did make, was that if you were to use medical resources to carry out that inquiry or expertise, that should or would be otherwise engaged with greater priorities in terms of what okay. was that physically going mm. on. But that's why I'm doing it now. Okay, so here we are. Th- those resources aren't needed for that emergency. The emergency. Well, they, they, yeah, well, but I mean, I don't see why you couldn't yeah. have a consultant geriatrician and uh, you know, a, a, you know, a, a well-qualified nurse. Yeah. You know, uh, you know, at least to sit on the board like this and to look at what happened there. And I mean, you know, I I could do it myself, Michael, if I had if I had the powers to bring people into me. And that's what the commission of inquiry is. It has the power to bring people in. Mm. And, and to, and would there be resistance? Well, I, I, I don't honestly know that, but you, you give them the power to do that. Now, in terms of these cross-inquiry, people did fully cooperate. So there was, mm. And I can't imagine... That I, can't, I can't imagine that people wouldn't. You know, I'm sure that uh, people made mistakes or did things or didn't do things that perhaps in hindsight they regret. I, I, I don't know, um, but I can't imagine that people wouldn't cooperate. Uh, it's so important to True. the families. It is a course, yeah, it is a course, but that's the power of the commission, you see, that's why you say commission, uh, so, so that, so that you know, that they have other powers, they have compatibility, but um, I don't, see, I don't, like, I mean, the people we're talking about here, I think in the main, right, of course, there's, there's the people who are working in the home, and I want to say the people who did work there and continue to work there in the huge crisis did a fantastic job, given the understaffing and the problems that were there, and they can only be praised for the commitment and their dedication uh, there's no doubt about that but okay. the, the, at the end at the end of the day at the end of the day you know you know the families need to know and mm. I, 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 I I continue to fully press and support them in this okay we'll leave it there for the moment but thank, thank you, you thank you very much indeed for joining us this morning that's Finnegale TD for Loud and East Mead Fergus O'Dowd 
Well, as you know, the government is introducing legislation. It will give all workers the right to request that they work from home, whether their employer says yes or no is another day's work. So the way it's going to work is that once you're six months in a workplace, you'll have the right to request remote working. Your employer has to respond within 12 weeks and has to give a reasoned response. The employer can say yes. They can issue a counteroffer. Um, perhaps partially accepting your request, uh, which you then have a month to uh, accept or refuse, or they can say no. But if they say no, they have to give a good reason, and it has to be a stated reason. Uh, there'll be a right of appeal, uh, either an internal appeals process or it's a WRC or both, uh, and it will be necessary to give a solid reason that stands up. It won't be just a procedural right. It can't, won't be just enough to just give a reason. Uh, that reason will have to stack up uh, and be solid. And that might be clear from some of the documents today, but certainly will be clear in the, in the final legislation when it's published. Uh, and of course, you will have the right to request again after 12 months and have your request to be reconsidered uh, afresh. Uh, also, every workplace will be required to have a remote working policy, setting out very clearly what that workplace's policy is uh, in relation to remote working. Well, that's the tarnished uh, Leo Brantker uh, explaining a little bit about uh, this legislation yesterday to reporters. Let's talk uh, to Paddy Malone, who's uh, the PRO for the Chamber of Commerce in Dundalk. Good morning, Paddy. Thanks uh, for joining us on the programme this morning. Uh, what do you make uh, of this or what will your members make of it more to the point? Well, I think your, your, your description that there was a little bit of the knowledge, which is what the tarnished was given, is a fair summary. There's an awful lot more detail that we have to go through. Um, I think most employers recognise the fact that employees did, you know, did put their shoulders to the wheel, did support their companies when the, the lockdown came in. The fact that most companies are still operational is a testament to that. Revenues forbearance is also another one, but that's going to run out shortly. That's a different story. So I, any, any, any employer that's applying a bit of common sense to this is going to decide to work with employees in this area. Uh, but there are a myriad of different problems with this. In, in, and the one that wasn't mentioned there today, but I think is the main one that employers are going to be worried about is there's a whole series of legislation in relation to work and safety. Um, and the employer, does he have to now go out and check that an employee's location is suitable, that the kitchen table isn't the place to be doing this, uh, or the back bedroom or whatever the place is? Uh, so that, all of that sort of stuff is going to have to be teased out. And I, I know one case where there was a, 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 a workplace, a person went out and ex- examined the place, a health and safety mm. officer went out and examined the place, and recommended about 10 grand's worth of improvements to the house. Who pays that? Now, they are, they are extreme examples. Well, that would be one of the reasons. Uh, it's one of uh, the 13 reasons that uh, employers could refuse a request to work at home. Uh, concerns read the suitability of the proposed workspaces on health and safety grounds. Uh, but as you say, who's going to check it? Uh, as I understand it, I think that will be for the employee to self-declare. Uh, but uh, again, that needs uh, clarity. I mean, this exactly, yeah. I mean mm-hmm. lawyers will have a field day with that, that the person didn't realise when they were, what, what, what gives them the confidence to self-declare that their premises are suitable if subsequently it's found out they're, that they're mm-hmm. not, that there's a, you know, that there's a, if it's a, if it's a PC they're working off, that there's uh, appropriate safeguards on the wires and everything else, no one's going to trip or anything else. Mm. 
Look, or in ten years, or in ten, year, in in ten years' time, if they've got serious back problems. Yeah, yeah, back, yeah, yeah. And we all, yeah. I, I, I have one member of my staff, and I keep saying to her, make sure you're comfortable with that chair because I couldn't sit in that chair for twenty minutes. But she's, if she finds it fine, so I'm, I'm not going to argue. But I've, mm. I've, I've said it in writing to her several times. You tell me if that chair is not right for you. And mm. um, so, look, a bit of common sense on both sides. The employee needs to think it through, logically needs to figure out how they're going to do it, um, all the ramifications that come from it from the point of view of upsetting other members of their family, uh, what happens if their family circumstances change. There are a whole load of things. It sounds to me like you'd uh, envisage conflicts. I I sincerely hope not. And what I'm saying is if everybody sits down and takes a deep breath and talks to the other side, then I think it can be worked through. And that, and as I said at the beginning, uh, uh, the very fact that we were able to switch into this new way of working so quickly after March 12, 2020, was a testament mostly to the employees' cop on and willingness to, 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 to put their shoulders at the wheel. Yeah. So it's not a case of conflict, um, but it is a case of it's, there may be changes. It, it may not suit every employer. So there is going to be an adjustment period uh, and the legislation is going to have to recognise individuality in, in individual circumstances in this. It's not going to be a one-size-fits-all for either side. Like, you know, there, there are people who want to get back to work, who want the social interaction with others and don't want to hear from their, from their employer, well, look, uh, your section's going to stay, stay away for the next three weeks. They don't want to hear that. Mm. Uh, so, uh, well, you're going to have to have a policy. Each employer is going, each to, employer have is going to have to sit down and write a work from home policy. Yeah, so a lot of HR guys going to be very busy writing policies. Um, and what I would hope I is... I take it, though, that somebody will just do a, a template which will apply to all... I, uh, that's what I was going to say. Businesses, that it's not possible. It's not template is not fair on the employee and it's going to get the employer into trouble. Okay, but if you work in a, a shop, I, I mean, if you're serving the public... You can't. Uh, yeah, so, I mean, surely a standard template would do for all... There, uh, there are some places where a standard template will do the job, but it's most, most templates, I would say, need to be tweaked a wee bit. Mm. Uh, and just apply... Just slow down and let's all take a deep breath and let's all do it so that we don't have conflict. And, you know, as I said, I think most people are reasonable. And as long as you don't get into your silos and start shouting at each other from the far side of a silo, there'll be no problems. So I don't see it as a conflict situation. It potentially is but I think it can be avoided with a bit of common sense and a bit of calmness. Mm, okay. Uh, there could be contractual problems for employees, uh, uh, or that could be uh, 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 grounds uh, for a dispute uh, between the employee and the employer, because a lot of people like the idea of uh, teamwork and working together as a team and building up a, a team spirit. And although you might be able to do the work at home, you can't do it in a team spirit if you're separated from people. Well, yeah, I mean, look, this idea of working in teams and working in clusters, you and I have discussed this in relation to the M1 many times and from the point of view of you don't need 2,000 people tearing into Google and Sandyford or wherever it's based. Uh, you can work them in groups of maybe 10 people who are living in the dock or 10 people who are living in Navan or Drawda and ask them to work together as a team in Drawda or in Navan. So this idea of teamwork is critical and small team pods can work. So most of what we're doing is, is a hybrid. Mm. We're not going back to pre-2020. That is a fact. 
Employers recognise that. Employees recognise that. In 2020, if I said Zoom to most people, they think I was talking about a car. Now people don't understand what I'm talking about. So those changes have occurred. You can't put that genie back into the bottle, even if you wanted to. And this is a great new opportunity for work in a different fashion. You know, if you go back to the, my grandparents' day where you worked on a Saturday morning and you were off on a Saturday afternoon, and if you were in England, you went off to watch Everton play or Liverpool or, or whoever else, you know? Mm. Those days, they're gone. We look at them now horrified. We're not talking about a four-day week. The five-day week is even gone, you know? Mm. So things change, and what is necessary from change is flexibility from both sides. Mm. Yeah, and it might be good for one side and not so good for the other. Uh, you might want people in the office so that uh, there's some creative thinking that's shared between people because some of the best ideas come about uh, unintentionally from people just talking to each Correct. other. But, but, but on the other hand, uh, who wants to pay for childcare if you don't need to be there? Who wants to be stuck in their car for hours every day if you don't need to be there? Who wants to uh, be paying for the fuel, the petrol, the diesel or the maintenance on the car for that matter? Yeah, well, look, on, on, on some of those, the remote working, and particularly if you've got good broadband, as County Louth has the best broadband in the country, even better than Dublin, there are opportunities now that you don't need to travel to Dublin. And I'm back on my hobby horse. Uh, on the relation to childcare, this country has been not slow, it's been stuck for the last 20 years and not tackled that issue properly. We have the worst rules and the worst childcare facilities in, 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 in the Western world. It's a disgrace where we are uh, and it needs to be reformed independently of any of this. And maybe this will just give an impetus that it's actually finally taken seriously by governments of all generations. Okay, we leave it there. Thanks, Paddy, for joining us as Thanks, always. Michael. Paddy Ballone, PRO for Dundalk's Chamber of Commerce. Michael, Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, we've had uh, this bizarre situation, or what seems to be a bizarre situation to many of us, uh, that uh, cameras cannot be used to catch people who are illegally dumping since the introduction of European data protection laws, known as GDPR. Fianna Fáil Senator Malcolm Byrne says there is a, a way around this, and he joins us now. And a very good morning to you, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the programme uh, this morning. You're suggesting that if legislation states that cameras are in place with the sole purpose of finding people who are dumping illegally, they can be used for that purpose. Uh, Yes, good morning, Michael, and good morning to your listeners. Uh, It's it's not entirely true to say that GDPR prevents uh, cameras from being used uh, for this purpose. Uh, GDPR is there for for good reasons. It's 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 around protecting our data. What we don't want to see is a kind of surveillance society where we're followed around by cameras the whole time. Um, but where um, there is a specific purpose given uh, for data collection, and there are clear safeguards put in place, it can be used. And the difficulty at the moment is it's not that local authorities like Louth County Council or Meath County Council can't use. Um, CCTV or drone technology it's just that there's no underpinning legislation uh, to allow them to mm. do so and okay. if you like a safe code to be able to, 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 to do this But it is the uh, effect is it not of GDPR for example uh, before GDPR uh, came into play uh, we'd have had cameras on uh, the bottle banks the bring banks and so on and if people were found littering there they were quite often fined that stopped as a consequence of GDPR It, 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 it did and I mean we can go into a big discussion around uh, GDPR because there were safety measures in place before GDPR 
Um, and, and, and GDPR does have a good purpose. I know it often gets a bad rap, but it, it ensures that for all of us that our data is protected, that you know companies can't just go off and, and use our data for whatever purpose uh, that they want. Um, however, we do need to ensure that we have the necessary legislation uh, to allow in, in deterring criminal activity, and this is what illegal dumping is, it's an environmental crime, uh, that we can allow the cameras to be able to, to do that. It's a bit like, for instance, where we know where we have Gatso vans on the road um, detecting people for the purposes of speeding. Mm. Uh, the only the only evidence that you know those cameras can use and the only thing that they can gather, the only data, is specifically for the purpose uh, of, of catching somebody speeding and there is underpinning uh, legislation to allow that to happen. So what I've been doing, and I know there have been efforts by, by quite a number of people and a lot of the councillors right across the country have been looking for this, uh, is to design a piece of legislation. Uh, it's, it's quite long, it's 25 pages, but, but that is to ensure all the necessary safeguards uh, are put in place. Uh, I've consulted with the Data Protection Commission on this. Uh, it's before the Shannon this evening. The government is going to accept it. Um, and, and I just want then it to progress so that hopefully we can get it in place as quickly as possible. But what it will allow is it will allow local authorities to use fixed or mobile CCTV, uh, drones, uh, automated number plate recognition technology, or indeed any new technology that may be developed over the next number of years, because this is technology neutral. Uh, it will allow local authorities, uh, provided they follow you know, the, ne- the necessary safety procedures, uh, around how they store that data, uh, it will allow it to use it to try and catch illegal dumpers. And if they catch somebody in the act of illegal dumping, uh, then the evidence that is gathered from that technology can be presented in court uh, for a prosecution. Because I think, yeah. you know, people are just fed up with this. Um, uh, I am, and everyone else, I think we want to see people caught uh, for doing this. I don't believe they should just be fined. I believe that some of these people who are, are serial dumpers, that they deserve to be jailed for what they're carrying out. All right. Uh, much of the dumping is completely senseless. I'm sure like everybody else who've uh, gone for a walk up the mountains uh, and looked at fridges or for uh, a walk along the riverbank and looked at mattresses uh, and all of these things are recyclable. It, it is. And I, mean, I, I just can't figure it out, Michael, in that if you think about, you know, their brain centres you know, all over the country. Um, and it might cost you a couple of euro to bring the mattress or the white goods or whatever there. It's cheaper than, you know, particularly with fuel prices at the moment, loading that up into the back of your car and driving out into a, a, a country area, potentially a beauty spot, yeah. and dumping the stuff. Well, I, I think so for white goods, but not for mattresses. Mattresses uh, can be quite expensive. I think it's 20 euro when you get into the recycling centre yeah, after a lot paying of local, it. A lot of local authorities, I mean, I know in, in my case, in Waxford County Council, every so often there's a, there's a, a mattress amnesty uh, yeah. where, you know, it, it encourages people to... To bring it in, but even even apart from all of this, mm. this is about civic pride and responsibility. It's about us caring. Uh, <laughs> yes, it, it, it is. But we're talking about people who don't have any uh, in any yeah. large amount anyway, and that is the problem, isn't it? It, it is. Yeah. Um, but the rest of us are paying for it. So yeah. I, I yeah. did a survey um, early last year of of all the local authorities around the country and. Combined nationally, uh, in dealing with littering and illegal dumping, it is costing uh, all of the local authorities in total between 90 and 100 million euro a year. Mm. And it's the rest of us, remember, who are paying for that, for that cleanup. Apart from that, there is the potential environmental damage, uh, that is, and, and particularly to soil. Uh, it's hazardous to livestock and to animals. 
you know, the, the, it, it is just wrong on so many levels. Uh, and, and we've got to give local authorities mm. uh, the powers to, in a safe way, to be able uh, to catch these people. And yeah. technology, you know, is advanced, uh, as we all know, to such an extent that we're able to, 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 to do these things. Um, as I said, I've been very grateful. A lot of, uh, you know, councillors right around the country who have, who have been put into this local authority efficiency the Data Protection Commission. Uh, I've worked closely with my Fianna Fáil colleagues, including Erin McGreen in, in Louth and Shane Castles uh, in Meath, who will both be speaking on the bill this evening. Um, we want to ensure that we get this bill in place. Um, uh, the government is accepting. We want to see the legislation ideally in place by the summer. Um, so that local authorities can roll out this technology and finally catch some of these folks. And bring an end to hotspots because there's hotspots for littering and uh, there are certain areas where people always dump their tyres and quite often truckloads of tyres or whatever the case may be. And the idea of this legislation, I gather, is that albeit remote areas, uh, they will be places where cameras can be put in place and can be used as evidence against those who are doing these dumpings. and, and this is as much an urban problem as it is a rural problem. I mean, we, we, we see dumping in urban areas as well. But what this will allow is it will allow local authority can either put, you know, fixed CCTV on particular areas. It can use mobile CCTV. Uh, it can be a case of that in certain areas that uh, local authority officials may decide to use drones. Uh, to be able uh, to... What about the airspace that drones would use? Uh, because uh, it's one thing catching people uh, dumping uh, illegally, but if you've uh, to cross somebody's land to get to that remote area or urban area, as uh, the case may be, there could be privacy issues there, I take it. There, there, there can be, and, and that's why the safeguards are built into the legislation that uh, any of the data or evidence that is gathered uh, can only be for the purpose and used for the purpose of trying to catch somebody involved uh, in illegal dumping. Now, there is a whole big debate around drones and airspace and privacy uh, as well. And I, I purposely steered mm. this legislation away from, from, from that issue. But in, if, for instance, and I mean, this is one of the problems that, you know, if you talk to Creamshare or people who mm. are areas of woodland, um, you know, this is something that, that, you know, they're in a position to do whereby you can track somebody who's trying to dump uh, in different parts of a wooded area, for instance, that they can use a drone uh, to be able to go and take an image of somebody who's who's dumping. Because, mm. you know, does, does, it, it, does it matter, though, if that's your sole intention, if you end up doing something else, because somebody is going to monitor the, this and if uh, they see somebody doing something uh, in uh, the privacy of their own home or on uh, their own land, as uh, the case may be, uh, well, then that's uh, uh, impinging on people's privacy, isn't it? I mean, somebody could be out topless bathing or something. Yeah, but 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 this is the, the, the whole point about why the safeguards are, are, are built in place. It's no different in, in many ways that, you know, in, in a lot of our towns and villages, uh, we have a CCTV systems uh, that are in place. They're frequently operated by local authorities uh, and it, it, they're, they're only accessed, if you like, those that are in the public areas, they're only accessed if, for instance, a crime has taken place in the area uh, and the Gardaí want to access the CCTV in order for the purposes of trying to identify you know, how the crime may have taken place or, or, or something along those lines. So it's, there are very specific safeguards in place. So similarly, any of the data, if there's a data controller within the local authority, any of the data, the purpose for which the technology must be used must be specifically uh, to you know, catch somebody who's illegal dumping, and any of the data gathered can only be used for, for that purpose. 
So, you know, it cannot be used for, um, you know, the, the detection of any other activity or anything else that you might be involved in. It must be specifically for, for, for that purpose. And that's why, it, it you know, those, those necessary data safeguards uh, are put in place. And as I said, GDPR doesn't prevent local authorities from, from doing this. It's just that there isn't the necessary uh, legislation with the safeguards underpinning it. And that's why I brought forward this bill. Okay, we'll leave it there for the moment. Thank you indeed uh, for joining us on uh, the programme uh, this morning. That bill will be debated in the Senate later and is expected to be accepted uh, by government. Fianna Fáil Senator Malcolm Byrne there. Now let me bring you some of uh, the comments coming to us uh, this morning. Uh, we'd uh, Desi in Balbriggan in touch with us about Fergus O'Dowd. Uh, and uh, Desi says, when Fergus O'Dowd talks about the government, uh, it has to be acknowledged he's the very one who's propping them up. He always votes in favour of the government, so it's time he's realised that he's only making up the numbers. Uh, thank you indeed, Desi, for that. I don't think we need to remind Fergus O'Dowd of that. He's uh, a government uh, backbench TD, a member of uh, the Fine Gael Party, and I'm sure he's very happy to be a member of the Fine Gael Party and to, to represent them in the Dáil. Uh, but he does... Uh, have his own position on certain issues, as we heard this morning. Uh, he said he had uh, the support uh, of his party leader in terms of an investigation into Dalgan House, uh, but it clearly doesn't have uh, the support of uh, the Taoiseach. Valerie Indrahada says, I, I don't think the government ever recognises County Louth, no matter what these TDs bring up in the doll, Louth has had the highest rates of COVID, the highest death rates in the country, and still no tests or vaccination centres in Drogheda. Doesn't matter what the issues are, whether it's drugs or COVID or driving tests, just completely ignored. Hope the people of the county wake up when it comes to the next election, Valerie says in her message to us this morning. Uh, John and Navin with us, uh, in touch with us once again. John has uh, sent us text in uh, the last few days uh, and uh, I haven't been reading it out John John's asking why are you not reading this out uh, because um, it's not about any issues uh, we're not going to read out uh, text messages uh, that uh, are critical of people for the sake of being critical of people uh, if you want to talk uh, about minimum unit pricing of alcohol that's one thing but not about those who are talking about it if you understand what I mean John uh, it's not that we're afraid to read out your messages or anything like that they're just not of any great relevance to the subject that we're talking about. But thank you and uh, do please keep in touch uh, and uh, if you haven't been in touch with us as yet, we'd love to hear from you. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, so much uh, talk uh, this week about working from home, whether that's in a purpose-built office in your house or whether you're sitting on the edge of your bed with a laptop. Uh, but working from home can take on many forms. Uh, you could be working from your hometown rather than travelling to another town uh, where your office is located. And many people are doing that already in hubs around the country, some 177 hubs uh, are in existence at the moment. The aim is uh, to increase that to 400 by the end of this year. The Minister for Rural and Community Development, Heather Humphreys is going to give an update on this later on today and how 9 million euro is going to be put into establishing these hubs across uh, the country. We're going to talk to Colin Markey, who's a Fine Gael MEP now, uh, about this uh, because Colin Markey, you're suggesting uh, that old banks should be turned into remote hubs? Well, I think certainly it would be an excellent opportunity to use the banks. I suppose you have have two sides of this. The banks are centrally located in most of our towns, kind of iconic buildings. 
So on one side, you have an empty, what will eventually become a derelict building if nothing happens to it, uh, which is no good for any town. And equally, you can put, like, to make a remote working hub work, I suppose, you want it in a place where there's a critical mass of people, where where there's a bit of life and activity around the place. So the idea of putting the like of those marquee buildings, making them part of a remote working future, I think, it would be a great opportunity. Okay, I suppose there's a, a lot of uh, buildings in uh, the centre of towns uh, that you could make the same argument about. Yeah, but the nature of a bank, I think, might lend itself towards a remote working hub. Like, they would have had to put their infrastructure in place for when it was a bank, be it like access to like a broadband or the like of a, even their security and different things. A lot of these things would, would lend themselves that the banks actually may be may be suitable for, for what's been asked to them, whereas a lot of the other buildings uh, may not may not lend themselves to it to the same degree. But equally, the same could apply for other buildings as well. There's no mm. doubt about that. And should we buy these buildings off the banks? I think the banks have a responsibility here to actually uh, to approach this in a different way. Like whether it be working with the local community in the area or whether it be working with the local authority, I think they have a responsibility to make them available in some shape or form. Obviously, it has to be in, in a right structure. But, like, there's plenty of ways they could do it. They could do it through a long-term lease, or they could do it through a low-interest loan, mm. or they could, they, they could do it from a reduced price. Now, the reduced price, they may have, let's say, they may have to show on, on the balance sheet. Well, they've empty properties at, at the moment, uh, and, you know, I think there'd be good reason for people saying, do we really want to bail the banks out again? We bailed them out before for 64 billion euro. Uh, That's exactly my point. I mm, totally like the the banks have a responsibility to the general public at this stage. The the state has stepped in and uh, and bailed out the banks in in the past. And I think this would be a small gesture towards recognition of that fact. Uh, to and look, I think it has to be done in a structured approach. Like if a community was to approach a bank and come forward with a viable proposal, which might include, let's say, a long-term lease of the property. The bank would still own the property, but a long-term lease over 20, 25 years, and it would allow them plan and get grants and all that to, to make this happen. I think the banks have a responsibility to engage with communities to allow that happen. OK. What about churches? Churches are an interesting concept. Most of the churches, I think, are still in, in use. Mm, I don't think they are. There's quite a few empty churches. Yeah, I don't churches know if it should be a church at the weekend and a remote up, up mm. during the week. There's a lot of empty churches around. The, uh, I'd say every town in the country has an empty church at this stage. I think it would be a more challenging job, the nature of a church in the big mm. open space, than it is in terms of just making a comfortable environment for people to work in. I think I think would be certainly a, b- a bigger challenge. But uh, I think where we're at at the moment is there's a number based on the closures that were announced and mm. the bank would be moving on, bear in mind too, so there would be more banks becoming available. They may be they may be a more suitable type of property, you know. Yeah, well, I, I suppose uh, at the end of the day, it'll be value for money uh, that dictates uh, what's bought, but they'll be important uh, for a lot of people uh, who do want to change uh, how they work and uh, the balance, the lifestyle, work st- workplace uh, balance uh, that uh, people are, are trying uh, to reach. Uh, because you, you hear a lot of people uh, complain, guess the Friday evening, uh, roll on the weekend, close down the laptop and you're still sitting in your living room or your kitchen or wherever the case may be uh, and uh, in the working day you're putting on the dishwasher or minding the children or whatever it is uh, and uh, there is no distinction between the two uh, and that's one of the things that's one of the, the great attractions for people about these hubs that they'd be able to go to a place of work 
that somewhere that would feel like a place of work, somewhere that is very different to their house and what they would regard to be their home, of course. Absolutely. I think there's three or four key points in relation to that. Like the, the idea of, let's say, the social interaction. If you're working in the, in the spare room in your house, you're seeing nobody all day long. There's nowhere you can drop in and say, look, we'll go and grab a coffee or that. Uh, the, the social dynamic is a key part of it. Even the interaction with people helps, helps in terms of someone's performance. Like, they, they, you know, just they, they, they get it done before 11 o'clock so they can go for the cup of sort of idea. Uh, just that general interaction, getting people out of cars, like from an environmental perspective, the the back the log jam on a road isn't good from people's own time. As you say, you just log off and you can go go go. You can you can head home. You're home in five minutes. If you get a call from the school that one of the children is sick or something, you're only five minutes away. In so many different ways, it's a you're, you're, It's also, by the way, in rural Ireland, where like. It, it's a multiplier in the local economy where the jobs are locally, they're getting their lunch in the local restaurant, whatever it is, that multiplier in the, in the rural economy is good for the rural economy. It also means that people who are in locations that couldn't necessarily have, have gone for these jobs, like let's say tied to their location, be it with children in school or whatever, a, they, or their house is there or whatever, they're, if they're tied to a location, they still can get a job in Dublin or even abroad. Like one of the things that we, do, we deal a lot with Grow Remote who are promoting remote work and they're, they're saying like there's 80,000 jobs available at the minute anywhere across Europe, freely available. There's even courses available to help you get on board in terms of them. There's one company who just, I got a text this morning, Flipdish uh, are looking for 700 employees at the minute. Like So there's plenty of remote working opportunities. Like, I know there's a debate as regards employers at the moment, but certainly uh, the, the opportunities are out there, even as we stand, and we have to create the environment to allow people to take up those opportunities. Okay, thank you indeed uh, for joining us uh, this morning. Fine Gael, MEP, Colin Markey. Now, let's uh, take a, a look at uh, some more of the comments. Tony in County Loud in touch saying, if these people who want to remain working at home and most of our left parties are in support of this uh, and uh, they are with regard to repeating the worthless giveaway leaving cert uh, seemingly on the only basis of never miss a populist bandwagon when it's passing uh, will they also support an equivalent pay rise for those who have to continue travelling and are not going to gain from this new world order where you can sack the home help and the childminder and the petrol pump. Let's be honest, Tony says, the only reason that these people want to continue at home is not the green argument, but the savings, which must be as good as 10 or 20% pay rise that essential on-site workers will not gain from. Thanks uh, very much for that, Tony. I imagine there's a lot of reasons uh, that people want to work from home and a lot of reasons that people don't want to work from home. Thanks, though, uh, for sharing all of those thoughts, uh, including your thoughts on uh, the leaving cert. Uh, We'll be talking about that in the next few minutes. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, to the Leaving Cert and what form it is going to take uh, this year, there's a lot of uh, concern and students certainly uh, wanted to have a hybrid system. Yesterday, the Dáil debated a Sinn Féin private member's motion uh, which would allow for a hybrid model of the Leaving Cert, uh, which would give students a choice between calculated grades and written examinations. The government rejected uh, the motion. Uh, The Minister for Education Norma Foley said no. Well, not yet anyway. I do understand the sentiments and concerns underlying the motion that has been put forward this evening. 
And I appreciate that examination year students have faced significant challenges in their learning as a result of the disruption caused by COVID-19. I also acknowledge that these students are eager to have certainty about the approach to be taken in respect of this year's state examinations. The Department of Education and I are currently involved in a process of engagement with education stakeholders regarding State Examinations 2022. And it is important that this process be allowed to conclude to inform the decision that will be taken. Consequently, the government is putting forward a counter motion to allow this process to conclude. All right, that rejects the Sinn Féin motion on the basis of not yet anyway, but maybe uh, we're still in the process of deciding. It's not particularly clear, is it? I do accept the need for clarity, and that needs to happen quickly. And the minister is very possessed of that reality also and we'll bring this to a Thank conclusion you, uh, within the next week. Within the next week. That's uh, Taoiseach Micheál Martin. Let's uh, speak uh, to Sinn Féin's spokesperson on education, Dunca O'Leary, who brought this motion to the Dáil yesterday evening. Good morning to you and thank you indeed uh, for joining us. Did you jump the gun, the Taoiseach, saying that the government will make its decision within the next week? No, I don't think so. In fact, I think it was an important contribution. Like, when you speak to students across the country, there's two things that come up. The first is the lack of, and indeed the families as well, the lack of certainty, the lack of clarity that's there is very frustrating. It's causing an awful lot of pressure. Like students deserve to know what kind of leaving cert they're going to be facing into. And the other thing they say to you is the amount of time that was lost and how hard they are finding it to cover the course. This isn't just about pressure and stress, albeit that those things are undoubtedly important. It's about their ability to cover the course. So I think it's important that... Um, I and other TDs who are sympathetic to that are keeping the pressure on, that we're keeping the pressure on so that we get an early decision and that we get the right decision. So yesterday's debate was a contribution to that. The vote hasn't happened yet. The vote will happen tonight. Um, so over the course of the day, I think uh, we will we will try and keep the pressure on. Uh, the hope that the government might reverse their position uh, on the vote. But in any <laughs> you're, event, you're the very, more crucial you're, issue... You're very hopeful, yes. Cru- sure. Yeah. The more crucial issue in any event, Michael, though, is what actually happens. And I'm... My hope is that from pressure from ourselves but also from students and their families that we get the earliest decision possible. I hope it might be before the end of the week. If not, that it might be early next week. We're going to keep the pressure on in any event that we get that clarity that's really badly needed. Like I say, students really do deserve to know what are they preparing for? What are they going to be facing for? What are they going to be facing over the course of the next few months? Um, very important months to them and to their family. So mm. that's still outstanding. That needs to be resolved. And that is why we tabled the motion yesterday. Are are the arguments there for a hybrid model? Uh, It seems as though there's a consensus on reform of the Leaving Cert being necessary, but the teachers, the teachers' unions, uh, want the traditional state exams to take place uh, this year. Uh, And, of course, there's this huge concern about how do you calculate uh, grades for people who didn't sit their junior cert? So there's a few issues there. The first is um, in relation to whether it's warranted, and I am absolutely certain of this. And, you know, like, I mean, I, I didn't rush to this position. Um, I was listening carefully to students over the course of the last few months. And it became very clear after the return from from the Christmas break how severe the disruption was. So first you had two, more than two months of school closures and remote learning um, last year. And, of course, many teachers did their best in those circumstances, but a lot of students weren't able to engage because of Wi-Fi connections and all those issues and all the challenges that are involved in that. The other is all the general disruptions of the pandemic, but the 
level of the impact that self-isolation has had on people's learning, I think is underestimated. So um, I spoke to one student and on their third day back from, from school after Christmas, they had seven scheduled classes. They only had two of them because the other five teachers were missing. They were self-isolating. That's nobody's fault. Uh, the teachers are obviously doing their best and they have to self-isolate if they're sick or if they have COVID and symptoms. Uh, but it is still a reality that we need to deal with. The survey that the Irish Second Level Students' Union has done said that since the Christmas break, a 49.5, so more or less half uh, of students missed one to three classes on average a day and about 10% missed four to five classes a day. So that's over half missing a good two, three to four or five classes every day. So it's very apparent that a lot of students are struggling to cover the course. This isn't just about stress and pressure. That is having a huge toll on students' mental health. But it's about the fact that some classes, and some classes are in a position to cover the course, but some classes are not. uh, And they have missed maybe two or three periods of self-isolation and the teachers missed two or three periods of self-isolation. So students are way behind. A lot of teachers are saying to them that they're not organising mocks because they're not ready for them yet. So I believe it's absolutely warranted. Can we take the exact same approach as last year? No, we can't. Uh, Obviously, there are additional details that need to be worked out because of the junior cert. Now, you still have three quarters of the cohort having junior cert results. And for the additional quarter, are there options there? There are. You could take uh, an average within the class cohort or within the cohort as a whole of the 62,000 and apply it to the students who don't have junior cert results. Or you could take the approach that was taken in the north where they had additional assessment tools, samples of work to provide a baseline. And it's, it's just a baseline that needs to be borne in mind. Uh, you're, you're working mm. off that baseline, but ultimately it's still the teacher's estimated grade that will be the biggest factor. And the student still has the option to sit the exam. So can these challenges be overcome? I'm absolutely certain of that. Right. Uh, despite uh, the questions over the credibility of uh, the exams, because there's questions over the credibility of last year's exams and uh, the fear that uh, grade inflation came into play uh, for whatever the reason was. And uh, if there's a question over the credibility of last year's results, uh, then it's going to be harder this year, is it not, uh, to justify how those grades are calculated if students didn't sit their uh, junior certs? Okay, well, the first thing is, and I think this has been a little bit lost in some of the stuff that's been put out there by people who who don't agree with the hybrid model. And I have to say, you know, just in terms of some of them criticisms, there's two things that they take for granted. One is that the leaving cert is fair in any year. Uh, and two is that the level of disruption hasn't been as severe as it has. Um, and I, I, I don't accept this, the, the, the narrative that the last year's results are, are fatally undermined or anything like that. It's worth bearing in mind that in every subject, in every subject, a majority of students chose to sit the exam um, up to as high as an excess of 70% in relation to the English papers and a lot of them in the in the 60% area. So most students chose to sit exams and some of them would have combined that with calculated grades. So that's an important point here. Students actually do want to sit exams. That's why they don't want it cancelled. They didn't want it cancelled last year. In relation to third-level places, it's worth bearing in mind The majority of students, the vast majority of students, got their first choice last year. No matter what system you establish, there will always be very severe competition 
on places in medicine, on dentistry, on the very high points courses. It's a small percentage of the amount of courses, but it gets a lot of the attention because that is where the competition is most severe. And obviously they're very important, but there are limits on how much you can expand those courses because of how expensive they are to organise those courses. So in any year, there will be challenges in allocating those places. I think that it is the fairest approach in the circumstances of the year and we do need to look and I think we need to begin planning now for next year, for the fifth years and how we ensure that they get a fair crack at with. But if this year's cohort don't get the same approach as last year, then actually they'll be competing with students who deferred from last year, who had more points uh, and this year's cohort will miss out. So uh, I think it is in every respect the fairest option. Uh, fair to the students because it's what the students are asking for but is it fair to them if it goes against the opinion of their teachers who are very clear that it's not in the best interest of the students I don't think it's necessarily clear obviously the two trade unions have two different positions and look they're two organisations they have good relationship and work with I agree with them on a lot of issues I don't want to agree with them on this I would say they don't have the exact same position one is calling for additional choice within the papers. One is calling for open access that everyone gets their first choice place um, in relation to the latter proposal. I, I, for the reason I was just kind of outlined in terms of medicine and dentistry, I, I don't think that's going to work, unfortunately. I, I would love to see it, but I don't think that that's going to work. Um, in relation to, but like, I mean, when I speak to individual teachers around the country, a lot of them are very sympathetic to this. And I would note that the National Association of Principals and Deputies is in favour of this. So they're an organisation that obviously see the fact that uh, there are a lot of students under pressure. So, of course, teachers have different opinions uh, and I understand that some of them have reservations in relation to this. Some of them support it, some of them have concerns. I think it's important if this does happen that they get careful protections. We need to preserve the relationship between the student and the teacher. We can't have uh, a situation where teachers are put under pressure. In my experience, that was the case last year that the teachers weren't put under that pressure and that is good. Uh, so I hope that that would be uh, repeated. But in my experience also is that whatever outcome is there and whether it's what I am proposing or another option, I know that teachers are some of the strongest advocates for their students and I know that whatever system is there, they will do their best to support their children, to support their students, to ensure that they get the best crack at progressing to third level or apprenticeships or whatever route they take because the Leaving Cert isn't just about third level. Okay, well, as the Taoiseach uh, committed uh, to yesterday, it seems as though there will be clarity uh, by uh, the end of uh, the week. Uh, we leave it there for the moment and thank you indeed uh, for joining us uh, this morning. That's uh, Sinn Féin's uh, spokesperson on education and skills, Dunca O'Leary. Now, we're going to hear a little bit from uh, the American president uh, who has now... Uh, gone in to the record books or history books, if you like, as uh, one of those uh, people who's been caught uh, making comments uh, when he didn't know his microphone was on. Uh, the president was taking report uh, uh, questions from reporters uh, and thought his microphone was off uh, a couple of days ago and had a rather bizarre response uh, to a question that came from a reporter from Fox News. Mr. President, could you give us a brief update on your call with European leaders on what's happening in Ukraine today? The only reason I don't like doing this is you never report on why I've called a meeting. And this is really important. I had a very, very, very good meeting, totally unanimity with all the European leaders. We'll talk about it later. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.
That's the president of America, Joe Biden. Uh, we'll hear more from Mr. Biden and what he had to say about the situation uh, at uh, the Ukraine in a couple of moments' time. Michael Reed on LMFM. There's a lot of uh, concern about uh, the Ukraine and we'll hear some of uh, the questions and indeed uh, the responses, uh, the questions that were put to the President of American by reporters uh, uh, yesterday. This morning you had you spent a lot of time with your national security team at the White House. Are there any updates on Ukraine, Mr. President? No, no updates except that uh, there's been no change in the posture of the Russian forces. There have uh, and now they're, as you know, they're along the entire Belarus border. And uh, I, uh, I made it clear to uh, early on to uh, President Putin that if he were to move into Ukraine, that there'd be severe consequences, including significant economic sanctions, as well as I'd feel obliged to beef up our presence, NATO's presence in on the Eastern Front, Poland, Romania, etc. And uh, so, uh, so, but I see, uh, I was watching one of you on television pointing out the fact that uh, I think you got it right, whoever it was, I'm, I'm embarrassed, I don't remember who, saying that this is all Putin. I don't think even his people know for certain what he's going to do. Would you ever see yourself personally sanctioning him if he did invade Ukraine? Yes. You would? I would see that. What would it take I mean, to trigger the deployment of the 8,500 troops that you've put on high alert? And what's your message to those those forces that are on high alert? Those forces on high alert are they're part of a NATO operation, not a sole U.S. operation. And I've made it clear to uh, President Putin that we would be but we have we have a sacred obligation, Article Five obligation to our NATO allies, and that if in fact he continued the buildup and/or was to move, we would be. Uh, be reinforcing those those troops, uh, and I've spoken with every one of our NATO allies in person, or not person, virtually, and we're all on the same page. We've got to make it clear that uh, um, that there's no reason for anyone, any member of NATO, to worry whether or not we would we NATO would come to their defense. And Mr. President, what about? Can you may I ask you about what what when you'll make a decision about deploying those troops? What will well, lead to depends. that? What would lead to that is what's going to happen, what Putin does or doesn't do, and uh, I may be moving some of those troops in the nearer term, just because it takes time. And uh, and again, it's not it's not provocative. It's just exactly what I said. Is that is that as long as we have to reassure, if you notice, you don't see a lot of concern uh, in terms of uh, their security of our, and of our our NATO allies in Western Europe, but in Eastern Europe, there's reason for concern. They're along the Russian border, there's the Belarus border, so everyone from Poland on has, has reason to be concerned about what would happen and what spillover effects could occur. We have no intention of putting American forces or NATO forces in Ukraine. But uh, we are, I, as I said, there are going to be serious economic consequences if he moves. Can you tell me whether you think, sir, that the risk of an invasion is increasing or decreasing or steady just as, as it has been these recent days? 
You know, I'll be completely honest with you. It's a little bit like reading tea leaves. Ordinarily, if we were a different leader, the fact that he continues to build forces along Ukraine's border from Belarus all the way around, you'd say, well, that means that he is looking like he's going to do something. But then you look at what his past behavior is and what uh, everyone is saying and his team, as well as everyone else, as to what is likely to happen. It all comes down to his, his decision. Look, let me conclude by saying there will be enormous consequences if he were to go in and invade, as he could, the entire country, or a lot less than that as well for Russia, not only in terms of economic consequences and political consequences, but it'll be enormous consequences worldwide. This would be the largest, if he were to move in with all those forces, to be the largest invasion since World War II. It would change the world. So bring stuff. Uh, the president of America, Joe Biden, Atlanta Camino, is an American citizen and a member of the Irish anti-war movement and on the line. But it's good morning to you, Atlanta, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the programme uh, this morning. You have concerns uh, about Russia uh, and its role in all of this, uh, but not exclusively about Russia. That's true. <clears throat> we are equally concerned about the role of NATO and particularly the US and Britain as, you know, upgrading this from a, a minor situation into a major warmongering setup with NATO people, soldiers going into every country around Russia. As John Pilger has pointed out, we may not be fans of Russia and what they do, but they have got their soldiers within their own borders. But the NATO soldiers are in all the countries surrounding Russia. If these soldiers were, if uh, Russian soldiers were in Canada and Mexico surrounding the U.S., we'd hear a very different story. Right. Uh, but why are the Russian soldiers on the Ukrainian border? The belief is, uh, the intention is uh, to invade. Well, I don't know a lot about the situation personally, but I know that President Zelensky in recent days has said that he does not think a Russian invasion is imminent and there's no reason for panic. Putin has said they do not intend to invade. My belief is that Putin and his allies have been saying for years that um, there was an agreement that Ukraine would not be allowed to join the NATO forces. Now, NATO says that agreement never existed. And and Russia, of course, has invaded um, before Ukraine. Uh, I think this was 2013. There was also, according to Pilger, there was... um, an implicit involvement of Obama and Biden in overthrowing a pro-Russian president of Ukraine and installing their own. Now, he's been replaced by because of corruption or who knows, maybe some of the Russian speaking people in Ukraine didn't like him. But um, he's been replaced by President Zelensky, who was an actor and a comedian, now a politician. But if he says there's no reason to panic and he's the president of Ukraine, I think maybe we might take that as face value. But I think what Putin is doing is having the fact that nobody has been listening to his complaints about NATO on his borders for years and years. It's kind of a power play. It's what he can do is to threaten Ukraine. He can do this. He can also organize these Mm. war exercises off the coast of Ireland, which is off the coast of a lot of NATO countries. Mm. And Ireland might be considered a weak spot because it's neutral. Mm. But all these things are 
it's almost as if he kicked a hornet's nest, and now all the hornets in the form of NATO are coming out and surrounding him. And um, But with good reason, uh, is it not, Linda? I mean, if you look at his recent history and the illegal annexation of Crimea. Well, there was, a, there was some kind of a resolution, I think, in Crimea that um, they did some sort of a referendum, um, which was not recognized by Ukraine that um, they considered themselves more connected to Russia. The problem is that Ukraine is divided. There are areas which are pro-Russian. There are areas which are pro-Europe, want to be part of Europe. It's not a universal consensus, unfortunately. A bit like Northern Ireland, Mm. you might say. But I think that we haven't worried enough about the effects of war exercises on actually fomenting and making war more likely. And certainly... You know, sending lethal weapons, lethal aid, as the U.S. called it, to uh, Ukraine is building up for a battle. Germany, although part of NATO, has refused to send military aid, saying that it's not a good idea. They're offering to build hospital instead. They're going to build a hospital in Ukraine to help. How are you? Sorry, I'm sorry. I was going to ask you about uh, the Russian military uh, operation off uh, the southwest coast. Uh, these live uh, fire drills uh, that uh, they're going to uh, have uh, missile trials and that sort of thing. How concerned uh, about that would you be, and how concerned would you be about the fishermen who are planning to protest by being in the seas at the time the Russians plan these maneuvers? Well, frankly, and speaking for myself now, not necessarily all of the IAWM, I believe the Irish South and West Fish Producers Organization are the only ones standing up to try to stop this. Mm. But um, will they be they blown legally, up? Legally, they are allowed to do it. Yeah, but, but, but to put it simply, will the fish, fishermen be blown up by the Russians? I don't think so. I really don't think mm. so. Um, do you remember in World War II, you won't remember, but in World War II, um, when the Allied soldiers were stuck on the beaches of Dunkirk, Churchill called for all the little ships to come. They called them little ships of Dunkirk. And there was a flotilla of pleasure craft, yachts, all kinds of boats that came out to rescue the sailors. Well, I think what the fishermen want to do is rescue the ocean from environmental damage. It's well known that exercises like this in the sea, particularly with um, live ammunition, can deafen sea creatures, it kills fish, Mm. it affects spawning grounds, it causes tremendous upset Mm. to uh, migratory fish because of sonar. And the the live around themselves are actually making the ocean more acidic and we don't know what chemicals are in those Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's dreadful. I mean, when they're telling you not to fly planes in the airspace over where they're planning to do the trials because you might be blown to smithereens or not to bring your boats into the area for pretty much the same reason. Obviously, there's a huge threat to the environment uh, and it is repugnant, I think, to most people to think that they'd be doing it. it's sickening. It's sickening. But I think we should have just as much concern about the NATO exercises. Like in 2018, NATO conducted 83 exercises and the Allies, 183. In 2019, there was another 100 or so. These are going on all the time. Very recently, Russia conducted a a live operation in the ocean um, with China and Iran. So we're... I don't think many people are aware, but the USSR actually applied to join NATO in 1954. This was rejected by the U.S. and the U.K. They wanted to join because they were afraid of remilitarization of Germany um, at the time. 
and they didn't want the U.S. to be part of a European um, defense organization. They wanted a European treaty on collective security. And later on, they even said, yes, the U.S. can join this. But this was rejected, and NATO continued. There was a Warsaw Pact that actually uh, was created in 1955 and a reaction to the creation of NATO. Um, Russia's mm. no angel. We, we know well, what sort no. of things they've yeah. done in the world. And it looks like we're on the brink, doesn't it? Well, it looks like that's being promoted. And the thing is, the main reason that Russia was not allowed to join NATO and why there was a Cold War is that the U.S. needed an enemy. And China is now being lined up as an enemy as well. The thing is, the fact of the matter is, there can be no continued life on Earth if we don't get a handle on war and militarization. War and militarization is never mentioned in COP26 or these other environmental conferences, but in fact it's one of the major causes of pollution and fossil fuel use in the world. Okay. And that needs to be examined. Like This reality is stark. We cannot continue to have a geopolitical, geopolitical setup based on militarism, arms world trade, and war and actually expect to have a livable planet in the end of the century or okay. even before. Glenda, we have to leave it there for the moment, but thank you for joining us this morning. Glenda Camino is a member of the Irish anti-war movement. Michael Reed on LMFM. Uh, let's hear about your credit card and what it's costing you or what it might be costing you. The Irish League of Credit Unions are suggesting you're aware of the interest that can be applied. Let's speak to Paul Bailey, who's head of communications with the Irish League of Credit Unions. And very good morning to you, Paul, and thanks for joining us. I think over half of us have a credit card. They're uh, very handy and can be used uh, for lots of good reasons and really don't uh, bother you so long as you pay off your credit card bills before the interest is applied. But that's where people can run into problems. That's exactly it. I mean, credit cards have their place for, for, for people who are good with money, good at managing their money. Um, so, I, I, you know, I don't uh, down credit cards altogether. But what we, we have found through our survey is that at 65% of, of people who own a credit card don't know what interest rate they pay. So, they, you know, their interest rates, some, some believe they're paying, uh, you know, as little as 5%. Uh, there's the over half believing they pay less than 10%, um, but there's only about mm. uh, 38% have kind of got it right. They know they pay between 18 and to 24%. We know that, you know, the credit card interest rates, depending on the provider, range from anything from 13% up to 26%. So um, very few people are aware of actually what they're paying. 26% is a lot of interest, isn't it? It's a huge amount of interest. Uh, mm. when, you, when you think now um, as I say if, if you're of a mind to manage your money well mm. and pay off your, your your credit card bill before the end of the month uh, you won't pay any interest mm. on it Okay but if you don't uh, let's make it yeah. simple to understand if you bought something for 100 euro you don't pay it off uh, then you owe 126 euro instead of 100 That's right uh, and, exactly. what, uh, and what happens uh, if you don't pay it for a second month? It builds, it keeps building, the interest keeps building on the balance. So there was very few people um, fully aware of, of how, how interest uh, works. So it was uh, that we found that 30% correctly knew that they, they paid interest on the full balance as well as the interest on the outstanding balance from the data transaction. So if you have, 
you know, just take your example, mm. you, you you spend 100 euro and you don't pay any interest and that's 126 by the end of the month. Uh, and then the next month you might use your credit card to buy something else, you know, for another 100 euro and you don't pay uh, any interest that month or you don't pay any payment that month. The interest then accumulates on that other 100 as well as the original balance so it's it's building up at that that stage you're over 250 although you've only borrowed 200 exactly exactly right so so that's where people get caught and and the other piece we found michael is that people believing that once they make that what the credit card companies call the minimum monthly repayment uh people wrongly believing that if once they make that um monthly minimum payment that they don't pay any interest Mm. Um, and that's you know a real concern and and it's sometimes at least if not quite often just a a lack of awareness people will have the money Uh, they had the money uh, but used their credit card because there's lots of good reasons uh, because uh, you can make claims if you're not happy with the goods uh, that you've received or the service that you've received uh, if you use your credit card and there's lots of reasons people will use their credit card but they might just think uh, well I've made the minimum payment or they haven't thought about it uh, and they end up with this interest on top of what they borrowed, and it's not necessary. Exactly, it's not. I mean, we we found you know over two thirds of people, or sorry, over one third of people believing that if they pay that minimum payment, they don't pay any interest. So that's a huge concern. And when we compare this to our previous surveys uh, that we've done in this area, that that figure is increasing. Mm. The, the, the number of people is increasing, not are fully aware. So what we would say to people is before you. You, you take out a credit card, you know, go on to the, the uh, consumer, uh, Competition and Consumer Protection Commission website, CP, ccpc.ie, and do a bit of research and find out exactly how credit card interest works uh, and how it's accumulated. And then, and only then, make a decision, is a credit card for me? It mm. may not be. There are cheaper forms of finance, such as, as we know, bank loans and credit union loans, that people can avail of if they want to go on a holiday. Um, so there are, there are cheaper forms of finance and more affordable forms of finance where they won't keep accumulating this monthly debt on top of the debt they have already mm. by not paying, you know. So uh, that's what I would say to people is educate themselves. Even, even go in and talk to your local credit union. Credit unions are very good at helping people understand finance and understanding their own situation <clears throat> and, and, you know, yeah. tailoring a loan to meet their, their particular circumstances. But it, it's, as I say, I'm not here to down credit mm. cards. We're mm. just here to uh, make yeah. people aware that you need to fully understand how they work. And they work for some people who are good with money. Well, the example I gave was very simple. Uh, and it might not seem like a, a lot to people because our, after a month, it goes from 100 to 126 euro. Uh, but if it was 1,000, it would go from 1,000 to 1,260 euro. Yeah. Uh, and over the course of a, a year, the 100 euro would be close on 200 euro or 1,000 euro would be close on 2,000 euro. If you were to yeah. borrow if you were to borrow 1,000 euro from the credit union, uh, what would it uh, be owed by the end of the year? What would you well, be paying yeah, back? If, if, you buy, if, you, if you borrowed a thousand euro, and even if it's at the high rate of twelve percent, which is allow, mm. which is the maximum rate that the credit unions can charge, so you, if you were to borrow that a thousand euro over twelve months, you would pay roughly uh, somewhere in the region of thirty to forty euro in interest mm. on that thousand euro yeah. over, you know, which is, that's that's a rough estimate. So, mm. yeah, which is considerably <laughs> cheaper. Yeah. Well, than you think you about the you think about the two hundred and sixty euro after one month. <laughs> Yeah, because yeah. of the 26, that's if it's 26. It would be going from 18, it could be uh, 180 euro, from 18% to percent to 24% or 26%. Um, yeah. But uh, 
the uh, credit cards themselves uh, for people who are using them to borrow uh, is a, a different thing um, and that there are loans available as you say from the credit union and elsewhere Exactly and I, and I would encourage people to, to, to look at all sources of finance and, and go with the most appropriate one that suits them and, and as I said credit cards may suit some people but mm. we and know if you, if, survey, if you were to use it to borrow at 26% how would that compare to a money lender? Yeah, well, that's an interesting question. But we know from our previous research with money lenders, you know, some money lenders can charge up to, you know, one hundred and fifty percent, one hundred and eighty percent. Some some licensed money lenders are cheaper, but they're they're probably you know there are some around the the twenty six. 30%. So, yeah, it, mm. it, it's, it's similar, you know. Okay. Um, it is a foolish way to borrow. All right, Paul, we have to leave it there. Thank you indeed for joining us uh, this morning. Paul Bailey, Head of Communications with the Irish League of Credit Unions. That's our programme for today. God willing, we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning. Bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie 